0: Hello, I'm Garni Barkadarian of the Pacific Neuroscience Institute and CNS member for more than 10 years. What I love most about being a member is access to cutting-edge science and the opportunities that have advanced my career. I've also gained new colleagues and lifelong friends. Being a CNS member has been so rewarding. The value of membership cannot be defined by a number. Join me and the over 10,000 neurosurgeons who are making a difference in the world. Visit cns.org slash membership podcast today. Good evening and welcome to another edition of the CNS Guidelines Podcast. My name is Brad Elder. I am neurosurgery faculty at The Ohio State University, and I am host of the Guidelines Podcast. My co-host tonight is Dr. Uh, Roosh Joshi, Uh, and uh, we have the privilege of welcoming uh, two authors to our uh, podcast tonight, Dr. John Daimar in the Department of Orthopedics at University of Louisville, as well as Dr. Praveen Mumineni, who is in the Department of Neurosurgery at the University of California, San Francisco. Uh, the topic tonight is Congress of Neurological Surgeons, Systematic Review and Evidence-Based Guidelines for Perioperative Spine, Preoperative Osteoporosis Assessment. So without further ado, I will turn it over to uh, Drs. Uh, Daimar and Mumineni for a review of this uh, paper.
1: Uh, This is Dr. John Dimar uh, from Louisville, Kentucky. Um, I'm going to talk to you about uh, osteoporosis. Uh, I had the great privilege of being selected to be on the panel of uh, experts, where I learned a lot, as much as I think I gave. uh, And my topic, of course, that was published several years ago was osteoporosis and metabolic bone disease and how it affects patients that are particularly undergoing surgery and what we need to do to identify and uh, treat this problem. So uh, myself, along with uh, Praveen and a a whole host of other experts from uh, the Congress of Neurosurgeons, um, basically um, did a very thorough literature review where we looked up all the articles from, I believe, 1946 through about 2019 uh, that specifically dealt with the issue of osteoporosis and what needs to be done to diagnose it, to uh, treat it, and how it affects our surgical outcomes. And as you know, this has been a real problem uh, and it's getting worse in the United States. Um, There's uh, perhaps a quarter of a million people diagnosed every year uh, with it. And the problem is that we have almost as many vertebral body fractures. And of course, if you have one fracture, your mortality is about 25%. If you have uh, two fractures, it now jumps uh, at two years at 32%, and, if, and at four years, the mortality can actually be up to 50%. So once you have a vertebral fracture due to poor bone quality, it's going to uh, perpetuate and cause a, almost a cascade effect within the spine. And the sad thing about this is that in many cases, the patients have not been identified as having osteoporosis. And more importantly, there's been little done either by the primary care community or by the specialist to effectively treat it. And this is in the face of the fact that we have so many breakthroughs and new medications and treatment modalities and regimes that have come out over the last five to 10 years that have really changed the face of treating poor bone quality and have allowed us to actually effectively treat the problem to prevent the pathological fractures of the hip and spine and forearm. And also, which is what we really kind of were focusing on, how can we prevent complications that seem to be related to osteoporosis with our spine surgery that we all do. Because we all have faced many patients with osteoporosis that have developed proximal junctional fractures and loose screws and failure to fuse. And so we decided to do a, uh, a retrospective review with a panel to really look at all the literature available to form the guideline to make some basic recommendations of how to treat patients that have osteoporosis if they're facing Elective surgery. We're not talking about emergency surgery in these cases. So, we really asked two basic fundamental questions. The first one was what preoperative diagnostic studies predict the risk of osteoporosis related adverse events after spine surgery? That was our first question that we asked, PICO question. And the second question was does preoperative treatment of low bone mineral density decrease the risk of postoperative adverse events after spine surgery? And if you think about that question, And the fact that we can actually affect something potentially to prevent that from happening is an incredibly important question. And we all were very enthusiastic about this, but the bottom line is we really went and looked at all the literature, and it it really boiled down that we ended up with well over almost 300 articles that we reviewed for the study that met the inclusion criteria, which are relatively strict. And we were really looking for some sort of studies that were prospective and randomized, and compare treatment without treatment. And it turned out that we actually were able, amazingly, to find a lot of articles that really were very informative as to what to do in these situations to improve bone quality and to prevent the catastrophic effects of having poor poor bone quality after, after a fusion. So we basically looked at all these studies and in particular, in Japan, there were many studies done by several authors there where they actually did some fairly decent prospective kind of somewhat randomized studies or cohort match studies where they looked at all the different treatment testing modalities and also at treatment modalities, particularly the bisphosphonates and the teriparatides, which are probably one of the two most commonly used things. And what we found was when we looked at what things that you can identify uh, that will increase the risk of adverse events, what we really found was that we can identify those risks by, by very simple studies, by doing a DEXA scan, which can identify poor bone quality, for example, a T-score less than minus 2.5. We also were able to look at the surrogate testing for that, which has been somewhat vetted, but not completely vetted, of Hounsville units that you could identify on the, on the CAT scan that you often have readily available to d- identify what the bone uh, density is, to re- which will lead to better fixation, better fusions. And, and less complications. And finally, what's really important and simple is just measuring serum vitamin D3 levels. And what we found out of that with those three just those three simple tests is we had enough evidence to make a grade B recommendation, which is fairly good, that recommended that preoperative treatment uh, basically that we should test those three things because if we can modulate those and treat those, we can decrease, we believe, the amount of post complications you have. So those three simple testing modalities will hopefully cut down on the osteoporosis-related events after surgery. Pretty simple. Now, with the second thing, we really looked at a bunch of post studies where in Japan in particular, we looked at studies that really compare teraparitides versus no teraparitides. And in some instances, bisphosphonates versus teraparitides. And what we found was that the teraparitides in particular uh, would increase and create a more robust fusion. They may improve patient outcomes, okay, and they seem to cut down on screw loosening and, and improve fusion rates and things along this line. The final thing that we found was that bisphosphonates are not as effective as the teraparotides, and so we had insufficient evidence to really recommend those in a perioperative or postoperative treatment regime or even preoperatively. So that answered our two PICO questions fairly effectively, that number one, we know that from the first question what tests you can do, that when we looked at vitamin D3 levels, fusion rates, adverse events, non-unions, we found people in particular with, with poor vitamin D levels had worse outcomes. Very simple thing, and something that's very simple to modulate preoperatively. And then we also found out that once you identified that if you treat with the widely available medications, that you can mitigate the risk of having potentially a postoperative complications with the evidence we had. So this led to the grade B grade B, and insufficient for bisphosphonate recommendations. So that's kind of a brief synopsis of the study and what we looked at. Praveen, do you have anything to add to that?
2: Yeah, I think that was a wonderful synopsis, John, of a lot of work from a lot of folks that, um, you know, participated in this guideline. Um, You know, I want to, you know, give out the names of the folks who are helping us, besides John, who led this particular chapter of the guideline, Erica Bisson, Sanjay Dahl, Jim Harrop, Dan Ho. Uh, Basman Mohamed, Marjorie Wong, uh, all did a lot of work on, on this guideline topic. Absolutely. Um, I think that one of the things that I would like to point out is how has this changed, you know, my practice um, after I read this guideline and after we reviewed this information. And I think if I could put it into a clinical context, that might be helpful. So, you know, just this morning I did, you know, some video telehealth uh, conference calls and I had some patients between the ages of 75 and 80 some of them who had a spinal thesis, some of them who had a, um, a adult degenerative scoliosis, all of them had stenosis and all of them had back and leg pain. And um, because of this guideline, I kind of, you know, didn't proceed with surgery on these patients. What I did was first I sent them for a bone density test and I want to know what their T score is. Um, the second thing that I did is I also ordered a CT scan. I tend to order CT scans in elderly patients when I'm planning a fusion Especially for deformities, because I want to see where the osteophytes are forming. I want to see if the discs that are herniated are calcified, but I also want to get a sense for what are the Hounsfield units of the bone density in the vertebral bodies that I'm planning to fuse. And the third thing that we can be that can be easily done is to get a serum vitamin D3 level. That's pretty inexpensive. You know, as far as you know, coverage of getting tests done, um, the DEXA scan. Uh, is covered by Medicare for patients, I think, every two years once they reach the age of 65. So it's relatively easy easy to order a CT scan, of course, you know, we as as spine surgeons order very frequently. I think the the serum vitamin D3 level is something that I typically would not have previously ordered before I was reading this guideline. But now I do think about ordering that as an adjunctive, very easy and very inexpensive test. And what happens is that the T-score, which often in this age group will come back at worse than negative 2.5, meaning worse than more than two and a half standard deviations off the mean, which means that they are osteoporotic. I'll hold on surgery and I'll recommend to the patients that they should take teriparatide for a period of two to three months before surgery so that I can get their bone density back towards a normal score, proceed with surgery and continue teriparatide on the opposite side of the operation as well in order so that, you know, we can avoid pseudoarthrosis and, um, and junctional fractures uh, in these patients with osteoporosis. I'm seeing more and more patients this age group of 75 to 80 years old who are coming to the clinic with stenosis and with um, problems that are likely to require a fusion. And so now I stop and I think, you know, what should I order and how should I treat? As far as, you know, some of these patients are already on bisphosphonates when they come to me. If they're on bisphosphonates, my takeaway from this, uh, you know, literature review is that I try to add in addition teriparatide if I can, because there's not enough recommendation with just bisphosphonates bisphosphonates alone that they're going to do okay with the fusion. So, you know, I try to add teraparatide to them and I'm, I'm curious what John thinks of that. Um, you know, my synopsis of, of how I deal with this clinically now.
1: Well, that's a great segue that you did there, Praveen into how you can apply it to your patients on a daily basis. There's a lot of gravitas, I think on the recommendations, because we all looked at these papers and went over them as a group over a quite a good period of time, just to make sure that we try to get as good of evidence as possible. You can treat with these medications that, that Praveen is talking about. I mean, I would personally would stop bisphosphonates because remember bisphosphonates slow bone loss and teraparitides will actually build bone loss or so they're anabolic. So you should give one or the other as a general rule. But the teriparatides are far more effective and far quicker as far as building bone mass and getting the patient's skeleton up to where you want it to be. And the most important reason why you do that is you're treating the osteoporosis, you're not treating the spinal disease. And that makes it really easy to get, more easier to get approval and more of an on-label use because really a teriparatri is not beneficial to say, or not really approved to say, I want to give a better fusion, for example. So it's, it's a way to effectively uh, kill two birds with one stone and, and treat two different diseases and everything. The other thing I should have mentioned is the minus T score, minus of minus 2.5 is equates to about a 97 HU units. And although it's becoming more and more common because we order CTs, as Praveen mentioned, on most of our patients for screw placement or other reasons, um, but it's an easy way to get a surrogate measurement and double-check what's your your, your uh, test scan because the test scan may be read more normal in the spine, but very bad in the hip. And so it's a regional score, too. Generally, we consider any low T-score to be indicative of the patient has global osteoporosis, but you may see quite a difference between the three regions that they mentioned. But the most important thing is the application that he talks about is, is how are you going to incorporate it into your practice to decrease your adverse events? And there's no question that getting a person's vitamin D level up is critically important because it really makes you make better bone in a way, and it's so easy to do. You send them to, to a, to a drugstore and get an over-the-counter medication that's highly effective. And, and the second thing is that as far as who do you use to start these, the process of this? Well, Praveen has taken the choice that, that he's going to do a lot of the legwork himself. Um, I do that myself because I'm just used to doing it. But in many cases, you can hire or get a nurse practitioner that specializes in it, or you may have a cadre of, of good endocrinologists that can really treat the difficult patients for this. And so there's a multi-step thing you need to do is first identify and then uh, treat and then you need to know who to treat and set up some sort of mechanism to effectively treat these patients. And you can bet that most people, as as Praveen said over the age of 65, if you really check, take the time to check their deck their their vitamin D level and their DEXA scan, you're gonna find out that one of those two parameters is probably abnormal. And so that's why it's so important to make this part of your routine pre-operative assessment for all the spine patients, particularly advanced deformities and involve more than two or three levels, or cases that are elective that you set up some sort of mechanism to identify and treat these patients, because it's going to create much better patient outcomes.
0: That was a a wonderful synopsis. Um, You know, a few questions from my standpoint. You mentioned, um, you know, most of uh it looks like most of the paper focuses on the preoperative setting whether it's preoperative medication or preoperative testing do do any of did, did anything that you read or, or or look at inform uh changes that you would make to your actual surgical strategy would you use different surgical adjuncts more screws different screws um you know bmp uh, uh bone, you know, all the different stuff that we can put in uh, during, at the time of surgery, does that, do do any of the, any of the papers that you read or did your opinions change on use of that in this patient population?
1: Well, I could say out of the cadre of literature reviewed, um, no, Um, not from the teriperitide. There are some papers that have come out since this, that the patients were given teriperitide in the perioperative period that it seemed to cut down on the proximal junctional failure by, by one author in particular, where they gave the patients teriparatide. Now, so you can't really say that that's going to prevent it. As far as uh, the medical or medication adjuncts, I'll address those kind of BMP and the parathyroid hormone receptor on the bone cells are side-by-side. Side. And they seem to kick on the osteoprogenitor cells synergistically. So they enhance each other. So that being said, you can see why patients that are on teraparitides that receive BMP may have somewhat of an enhancing effect, some people believe. As far as adjuncts surgically, like implants or things like that, all of the things you talked about are things we have traditionally used that may or may not be effective. We've tried tethering at the proximal junction. We've tried hooks. We've tried um, putting bone graft material and just doing a simple fusion and we tried hydroxyapatite-coated screws, we still seem to get PJK. And that's why, in my mind at least, it always comes back to the fundamental strength and quality of the bone and the ability to get a fusion, because all these patients are likely to get PJK. Does that make sense? And so, um, um, in my opinion, um, if you look at a deformity patient that's young that you do, you never see PJK hardly in those patients. It's very rare that it's symptomatic even if they do develop it. But in our older patients with poor bone quality, it's much more likely. So those are all things you can think about when you do your patient surgery.
0: Sure. Um, uh, What about using cement screws?
1: Um, Well, I'll I'll, I'll, let Praveen, I do use those occasionally, but not often, um, because it may keep the screws from loosening or pull out, but it doesn't prevent proximal junctional failure above.
2: Unfortunate thing with using bone cement is that um, you may protect the upper instrumented vertebra, but the level above the upper instrumented vertebra may then fracture um, because now you've set up the upper instrumented vertebra as being stronger and the next level being weaker. So it goes to the weakest part of the construct. People have tried doing the, uh, in a deformity case, uh, cementing the upper instrumented vertebra, cementing the level above the upper instrumented vertebra as well, but still they're having some PJK at the next above level. So it seems like to some extent we can't 100% stop it, um, you know. And I think uh, one one of the other things that I just want to go back now is when I look at these decks of bone density scans, I really focus more on the hip and the wrist um, because the spine bone density scans can be abnormally um, elevated in their density because of osteophytes. And you're not putting the screws in the osteophytic area of the bone; you're putting the screws into the cancellous portion of the material body. Um, And, you know, that's the least common denominator. And so I don't really look at the spine bone density per se. I look at the hip and the wrist. I think that's important to to point out as well.
0: Yeah, are there any, is there a combination of factors, whether it be in all three of these tests, or you add in age, or you add in complexity of the surgery, or what have you, are there any, are there any combinations of factors that create somewhat of a just a flat out no fly zone, you know, just look this, we can't do this. This should not be, uh, this patient should not have a surgery too dangerous, or is it all kind of in the first PICO question, does it get, does it just ultimately boil down to counseling? Maybe I'll
2: answer that one. I do say no to some patients, Brad. Uh, I say no to some patients who have a T-score of minus three, say, and then they cannot take care of peritide. Maybe they had some kind of cancer in the past, you know, related to their parathyroid or whatever, and they're not candidates for it. Um, In those cases, which are elective with a terrible bone density, and I cannot treat ahead of time, I'll say no, and I'll tell them that, you know, your risk of you having some kind of failed fusion or junctional failure is so high that I just don't think it's worth it. So I've said no to folks before. It's a very small number of folks, but I say no to folks if I can't treat their bone density.
1: Uh, I agree with that 100%, Praveen. I I do say no to people, but the thing you have, you you may... Theoretically, have to say no to less people because we have effective treatment regimes that we can perhaps boost their bone quality enough and mitigate a lot of their comorbidities that we actually could do successful surgery. But I agree with a with a very low uh, T score and um, patients with comorbidities. You probably will make them far worse off by doing a surgery too quickly and not addressing their bone health than just letting them go. And so, if a patient can't take the medication or has so many comorbidities that they're, you know, renal failure and liver failure. You know, those are absolutely necessary to make vitamin D3 uh, naturally. And, and, you know, you need all those things put together. So sometimes you need to learn to say no, and you need to say, you've got a deformity. We're going to pre-treat you with these medications. The teriparatides, or now more recently, the uh, which is commercially available, which works by an entire different pathway. You know, uh, the, Teriparatrize, we increase your bone mass 20 to 30% a year, and the romosozumab ter- and, and is even more than that. And so you have an opportunity with good um, uh, treatment medically to really, for the first time, improve the patient's bone quality to get them into a level that you actually can do your surgery for them successfully with and mitigate the complications.
0: Let me see if Dr. Uh, Joshi has questions. Hi, everyone. My name is Roush.
3: I'm a PGY3 from the University of Michigan. Um, Thank you, Dr. Eller, for inviting me back onto the podcast. I think these are really helpful, especially for residents um, becoming more familiar with the guidelines. Um, I think the majority of my questions were answered, um, you know, by the very comprehensive synopsis that was given. But one thing I wanted to touch on, um, Dr. Muminani talked a little bit about how this has changed his clinical practice, and I was wondering if maybe you could elaborate on how you've actually integrated this into your um, workflow. For example, is there any indication for some sort of pre-screening with cardiologists? You know, patients will have lipid panels and all the relevant studies before they even go and present for a new patient visit. And is that something that's feasible for all spine patients or maybe patients who fall into a high risk um, category, such as postmenopausal women or patients over 65? And then second, if you could maybe just briefly elaborate on any collaborations you may have with endocrinologists and whether they're the ones that help dictate timing and duration of these um, different treatment modalities, and if they're the ones that are following up on repeat serum values for um, vitamin D3, or you know if they're going to order these scans after a set duration and then send the patients back to you guys. Yeah,
2: I think these are, are great questions, uh, Rush, and I think uh, a couple of things that I'll say is, um, you know, we don't want to limit the number of patients coming into the clinic on the front end by having a bunch of barriers to entry. So if they have an MRI and it shows a pathology, they'll get into the clinic, but they don't usually see me first. They'll see my nurse practitioner or they'll see the spine fellow. And, this, and these people know, because it's our protocol now, to order a bone density study if they're age over 65 Uh, Or if they have any risk factors of osteoporosis, like a family history, or if they've already had fractures in their hip or their wrist or whatever it is from before, they'll go ahead and order the bone density test and they'll order the MRI. And if they think we're going to need a fusion, they may even order a CT and a vitamin D3 level. So that's all gets done before I see the patient. Um, So that when I see the patient, you know, they're basically ready to go, or, you know, if they're not ready to go, we've already identified the problem that their bone density is awful and needs to be fixed. So they get put on teriparatide, and then they see me and then, you know, plan surgery a couple of months down the road to give time to, uh, to treat the bone density. Um, sorry, the second part of your question was? Uh, the second part was as far as active collaborations with
3: endocrinologists. Uh, yes. Um...
2: We, we did establish a very active collaboration with the UCSF endocrinology team. And um, and we have a you know, relationship with the uh, chief of endocrine whereby we can send patients back and forth and I don't prescribe the teriparatide because there's some blood work and things that you've got to monitor when you uh, give that medication. So our endocrinology team will do a telehealth with the patients. They'll double check the bone densities. They'll start them on teriparatide, or they'll tell us this patient's not a candidate. And, you know, is there, are they candid for saying anything else? We'll have that conversation. So we do have a very active collaboration with them and share patients with them. Great. Thank
0: you. Thank you. Well, we're running a little short on time. I did want to ask one last question for both of our guests is what would be the uh, the next clinical study that you would like to see performed that would help move this field along?
1: Well, I mean, what I would do is, is um, I would do a prospective randomized study that's well, ma- you know, well-matched and randomized uh, of, you know, either probably start simple with just a single level fusion and evaluate um, their bone density and vitamin D and everything preoperatively uh, and probably pre-treat them for six months or whatever is necessary and then see what their outcomes are as far as their outcome measures, screw loosening, fusion rate, complications, and adjacent level degeneration. And um, that that's a tough study to do, um, but it would really definitively show whether or not these medications and at the same time, the improvement of bone density uh, is effective in preventing the adverse events we're facing.
2: You know, the other thing that I would say is I'm curious if we do a longitudinal study on patients of teriparatide to see if they're reducing their risk of hip fractures and other fractures, which are really debilitating. I just wonder longitudinally what would happen. That's one other study that I propose for
1: the future. And, and you know, Praveen, I, I, I think I'm I'm far away from hip surgeons and you're even further away from hip surgeons, but they are, they're, they're doing those studies. Um, I'm pretty sure those are being done. And, and you know, hip fractures uh, were a fatal event before they were pinned twenty, you know, forty years ago, and so mm-hmm. those those are that's probably what we'd want to look at it to see if we can actually improve the bone enough to make it more juvenile, so to speak, so that it will stand up the test of time.
0: Well, we're uh, fresh out of time, so uh, thank you very much to our guests, Dr. Mumineni, Dr. Daimar, for joining us today. I also want to thank Dr. Josie, uh Joshi from uh, Michigan, for joining us as the uh, as my guest co-host uh, on the resident side. I want to thank both of our authors for their tireless work bringing guidelines projects to fruition. For our listeners, please check the CNS website regularly for updated guidelines, topics, and podcasts. And with that, I'll bid everyone a good night.